This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. This is the Informer Daily for Friday, the 24th of April, 2020. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Today, what was the Australian gay male experience like in the Second World War? Ahead of Anzac Day tomorrow, we speak to Yorick Small about his research into homosexuality in the Australian defense. Nicholas Kamenu-Sandry has a review of the classic novel The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle. But first, this update. This is Dee Mason with the Joy 94.9 COVID-19 update for Friday the 24th of April. Prime Minister Scott Morrison says Australia is in the third phase of the COVID-19 pandemic, meaning the focus is now on limiting community transmission through extensive testing and tracing. Australians currently exhibiting any symptoms of COVID-19 are being encouraged by the federal government to get tested as soon as possible. Some of the strictest social distancing measures put in place on a state level are beginning to be eased, a move encouraged by Morrison. US company Amazon has been awarded the contract to store the data collected by the COVID-19 tracking app being developed by the Australian government. People within Australia's Digital Transformation Agency are voicing concern about this contract going to an overseas company. Amongst these concerns are questions over who will have access to the data collected. A spokesperson for Government Services Minister Stuart Robert, who is responsible for the app, says the data will be very secure and protected by laws that will only allow access by health professionals. Anzac Day services across the country are all cancelled and people are being told to stay home tomorrow morning. The RSL is encouraging people to commemorate the day by standing in their driveways or garages at 6am. Two people were injected with a potential COVID-19 vaccine in England overnight in the first human trial for the drug. Researchers at Oxford University are running the study, backed by millions of pounds from the UK government. The pair won't be purposefully exposed to COVID-19, so no one should expect results anytime soon. Similar studies are also being conducted in Germany and the United States. A further 4.4 million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits, bringing the total up to 26 million. Estimates say around one in six Americans have lost work in the last five weeks. Some economists are predicting a 20% unemployment rate in the US by the end of the pandemic. A $500 billion stimulus package for employment relief and hospitals has been passed by Congress. House prices are set to fall, with the property analyst saying there will be a 30% drop in prices if social distancing restrictions are extended for another six months. If measures begin easing in May, there is a chance prices will begin to recover in the September or December quarters. New South Wales is expanding their testing criteria so now anyone who has symptoms of COVID-19 can get tested. Premier Gladys Berejiklian says she wants the state to be testing more than 8,000 people a day. Tasmania has gone 24 hours without recording a new case of COVID-19 for the first time in three weeks. 
This news comes as another Tasmanian dies from the virus. The 79-year-old's death, along with that of a WA man's, brings the national toll to 78. A Queensland couple in their 80s is selling their multi-million dollar seaside penthouse and will donate the proceeds to COVID-19 research. It is hoped the property will sell at auction for $3 million, all of which will then go to the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Foundation Coronavirus Action Fund. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. As you know, it's Radiothon here at Joy 94.9 and... Joy plays a really important role for a lot of people, especially our volunteers. And Dina Keery, who contributes to The Informer, as well as Mad Wednesdays. And Dina Keery talks about why Joy is important to him. When I first started volunteering at Joy, it was a chance to share my voice with the community and to be a part of this amazing community that makes up this station. But I honestly didn't know what that meant until I really became a part of the station in so many different ways and shapes. I've been a part of Joy for four years, and in that time, I've been both behind the scenes and in front of the microphone, here on The Informer, as the EP of The Informer previously, and then on Wednesdays every week in the drive slot. And it's great to be able to share those different voices and levels and stories with our communities. Sometimes it's about the laughs, sometimes it's about the music, Sometimes it's about informing and educating, and other times it's just about sharing the narratives that exist within our world, and I wouldn't be able to do that anywhere else. The diversity and the variety that we get to have here on the station is amazing, and it's wonderful that it comes from so many volunteers sharing so many more stories and ideas with our communities. Thanks, Dean. And the link to donate is joy.org.au slash radiothon. That's joy.org.au slash radiothon. Anzac Day is tomorrow, and we'll hear a lot of stories about the ADF, but what about some of the groups that are spoken about less than others? I spoke to Yorick Small from Griffith University to find out what the gay male experience was like in the Second World War. Yeah, so what was the gay male experience like? The gay male experience, well, I suppose it kind of depended on, you know, what service you were in. It depended on where you were stationed. And I think, you know, these things were inflected by things like opportunity and by rank. But ultimately, I think there was plenty of opportunity for men seeking contact with others um, across the Second World War, both on the home front and in forward bases in places like New Guinea. Mm -hmm. The evidence is quite clear about that. And so I think... That really enabled men to engage in sex with others. It allowed them to uh, find friendship and fellowship and to socialise with like-minded others, both in small groups as well as kind of large urban subcultures. And, you know, men also created, you know, these large subcultural worlds in places like New Guinea mm-hmm. um, when they were transferred to the to the territory. And so I think there are a lot of opportunities there for men to discover themselves and to yeah, create these new worlds. In the cities at the time, I would assume that most gay men would would either find each other like through friends or through like cruising. Um, yep. What what was that experience like on the front lines? Um, well, I think you know, sex under fire 
you know, was pretty much off the table. I think men are, you know, really looking to survive in those circumstances, manning their foxholes, looking out for their mates. But in large, in larger bases, um, like New Guinea, men had the same kinds of opportunities. And I think that places like Moresby in many ways replicated what was happening on the home front. Mm-hmm. So you know, men would meet each other, say, at the Red Cross, gather around the piano, have a sing-song, you know, maybe be introduced to others through their friends. They cruised the streets. They went to to baths, to latrines. They met at air raid shelters. And so I think it's a combination, again, of street, of street cruising, sorry, mm-hmm. of, you know, meeting others through friends um, and also through social events. And how much was homosexual activity tolerated? Well, I think it's tolerated a lot more than we think it was. One scholar in the UK has put forward this idea of the good fellow, Emma Vickers, um, and Emma talks about the good fellow being a competent and useful soldier. And in those circumstances, men who were attracted to others or who were engaged in homosexual behaviour or were perhaps a little bit flamboyant or camp were um, often tolerated by their friends if they were useful um, and good soldiers. And I think we find the same kind of thing playing out in the Australian forces. Mm-hmm. I think that um, camp men could provide a bit of comic relief We see uh, examples where the especially flamboyant and camp uh, were tolerated by their their colleagues and comrades. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's not all doom and gloom. (laughs) I think that, you know, there was a place there. I mean, of course, a lot of men kept it secret. A lot of men uh, weren't tolerant, but -hmm. others were as well. And, you know, part of that perhaps plays into the idea of the kind of um, asexual sissy. But I think also... A large part of it was about, you know, morale and um, and about um, a certain amount of tolerance among soldiers in very uh, pressured environments. How how do you know this? What? Well, there, there's actually a lot of evidence. Once you go looking for it, we have quite a few oral histories at the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives mm-hmm. in Melbourne. Uh, there's army files. There's some fractured uh, court martial statistics. There's oral histories in um, books like Gary Wotherspoon's Being Different, uh, Nine Gay Men Remember. There's um, other pieces of evidence in work by Clive Moore and Dino Hodge and there's Donald Friend's diaries. And so once you kind of read the quantum of evidence, Mm -hmm. you can start to piece together um, the way in which, you know, the male experience played out in the Second World War, those moments of acceptance and tolerance, as well as kind of moments where that behaviour was frowned upon as well. You know, we have very rich vein of evidence in a army file that's held at the National Archives, Mm -hmm. which investigated an incident in New Guinea in late 1943-1944. And there's well over 100 pages of correspondence around male homosexuality and the way in which the army might deal with that problem. What was the issue there? In late 1943, the commander of the New Guinea force had it brought to his attention that there were a number of men practicing so-called, practicing the... um, female side of homosexuality in the territory. His approach was to have the men interviewed, have them reveal the name of their friends, and have them assessed by a psychiatrist and boarded as a tentative D, which meant unfit for service, and have them returned to the mainland. And he wrote to land headquarters in Melbourne and advised them 
what was happening and what he'd found. And land headquarters were very upset. And they wrote back to the commander and said, well, no, that's not how we deal <laughs> with this particular problem. So the criminal act, mm. uh, these men should be charged under the Army Act, under the appropriate sections, and they should be court-martialed. Mm. And then there's really a flurry of correspondence over the next couple of months around this problem and what the best way forward was. The commander in New Guinea pointed out that because these were confessions, there wasn't really any other form of evidence. And so it'd be very difficult to have a court-martial. Experts in Melbourne started to worry that if men were discharged on their own admission, that men might begin to fake homosexuality in order to, to get a discharge mm. so that they could escape from uncongenial locations. Mm. Um, but eventually they reconciled the position. They, they set in tow an investigation on the Australian mainland to try to find out how many cases had come to notice over the last few years. So I think since 1942, when only 17 cases were identified mm -hmm. in the entire Australian army, which is a ridiculous number. But I think it also talks to the way that, you know, um, the army responded to homosexuality in terms of a lot of cases not coming to notice, a lot of things being uh, hidden, probably a lot of informal responses, senior officers turning a blind eye because they don't want to have to deal with the paperwork. Yeah. Or the idea that if you had, you know, a queer man in your ranks, then, you know, the kind of group identity politics of the forces probably suggested that that might take taint your entire unit. And so for that reason, you know, a lot of cases just kind of flew under the radar. But eventually they got to a position where they decided that if there was enough evidence to prosecute, they would prosecute. Where there wasn't enough evidence, they would treat it as a medical case and discharge. And so the army really became the first Australian institution, I think, to grapple in a practical way with the differences between homosexual identity and homosexual behaviour and kind of put forward this policy to deal with the issue. What about in the Navy? Well, yes, the Navy has a long <laughs> reputation. Uh, I think uh, Churchill was Churchill who said the uh, Navy was all um, rum, bum and gramophone. But, um, yeah, look, the Navy records are a little bit harder to get to. I had access to a sample of courts martial files from the first quarter of 1944, which I went through for the Australian Navy, and about 3% of cases in the courts martial records concerned same-sex behaviours. Mm -hmm. But again, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence about the Navy, about these floating subcultures of men at sea for long periods of time. And again, looking at oral histories and even looking at a lot of the um, criminal records in Australia where returning servicemen had been caught up on the home front after returning from the front line. They talk about their experiences overseas. So that often admit that, you know, sex between men was a very common thing in the army. Some of the soldiers who had given testimony in New Guinea talked about, you know, how rife it was, even on the troop ships coming home from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And again, I think soldiers, you know, made contact on, uh, made contact in, um, you know, their sleeping quarters, in barracks, uh, in showers, um, and found un. Uh, use locations on ships in order to to kind of meet each other and you know yep. have a have a secret rendezvous when soldiers and sailors return to their sort of civilian lives what what do you what did the research that you've done show about how those people were changed a lot of american historians have argued that 
you know, the Second World War queer life in terms of, you know, really laying the foundations of a political voice. Well, there's sort of that um, classic story of, you know, someone from the rural areas that was in the military and then ended up settling in San Francisco after the war because they, they could be themselves more than they could be in, in Peoria or wherever. Yeah, and I think you find the same kinds of examples in Australia where, you know, men discovered a, you know, new range of possibilities for themselves in the forces and, and, and some men who either, you know, confirmed their sense of self or others who discovered themselves for the first time, you know, weren't prepared to go back to the lives that they lived mm. before the war. And so they moved to large cities like Melbourne or Sydney. Gary Wotherspoon has documented the existence of a post-war club called The Diggers um, in <laughs> Sydney um, mm. after the war, uh, which indicates that, you know, soldiers were seeking company, mm-hmm. you know, with their queer comrades, you know, after they returned home. I think that others probably lived a very similar life to the lives they lived beforehand, you know, and meshing themselves in queer subcultures or street cruising, mm-hmm. perhaps continuing to live the double life that they lived before the war. And others still who engaged in queer romance or sexual behaviour, came home and got married. So I think that there's a whole diverse range of subjectivities there, depending on the individual and their experiences. Yeah, so I think there's quite a bit of um, evidence of men who were very happy to take their pleasure where they could find it. You know, and I think obviously sexuality is, you know, kind of very contingent and fluid. And so there are a lot of men who were you know, open to exploring yep. those aspects of themselves with the same sex in the context of the Second World War, who after the war went back to their girlfriends or went back to their wives and probably never spoke of that uh, particular experience again. Obviously, in the early 1980s, a group of gay men tried to lay a wreath to uh, acknowledge their fallen and past comrades. Um, the outspoken president of the RSL, Bruce Roxton, was having none of that. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of an ensuing public discourse around that. And then Roxton said he couldn't remember any poofs from World War II. And it's a bit of public debate going on in the newspapers about this particular incident and its accuracy. And I think in many ways it kind of challenges our dominant ideas of, you know, Anzac and remembrance and, you know who and what it is we remember Mm. on Anzac Day. But obviously, it encompasses such a wide range of contributions from the Australian community. We've obviously, it's been a very kind of particular story that we've wanted to tell about Australian men and their role in nation building. Mm -hmm. But I think scholars and activists have pointed out the, you know, very significant contributions and sacrifices of Australians more generally, whether that's women, mm-hmm. whether it's Indigenous soldiers, whether it's gay soldiers. And so mm-hmm. I think we're slowly perhaps opening up the possibilities to be more inclusive in the stories that we tell on Anzac Day and the sacrifices that so many people made, both on the front line and on the home front. And that was York Small from Griffith University. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. It's Friday, and Nicholas Kamenyer-Sandry has a book review. 
So there's a particular subset of adult fantasy readers who will tell you that their favorite fantasy novel is The Last Unicorn. Uh, most people know of this story through the animated movie adaptation, which is actually quite a good adaptation. And I would hazard to say that it's because the author of the book, Peter S. Beagle, was actually the lead writer on that film. Uh, so it follows the story quite closely, and I would even argue that it improves it in a few subtle ways. However, one thing that the film has never had on the novel is the writing quality. In fact, the film can turn a lot of people off that kind of story because many adults, myself included, actually don't like a animated cartoon aesthetic, especially if it's you know, geared towards children. So I would argue that in terms of allowing people to experience the story of The Last Unicorn, which is a fantastic story, the novel plays a really important role in keeping, you know, adults with certain tastes able to read it. Um, so what is The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle? Well, it's a novel about what else but a unicorn who discovers that she is the last in the world. And she goes on an adventure to try and find the rest of her kind because she believes that they're still out there. And it's written with kind of a fairy tale sensibility. Like, it's a very, very soft magic kind of world that they've got going on. I think it's probably best exemplified by a particular scene that was actually changed in the film version when one of the characters, who is a wizard named Schmendrick, uh, the, these names are quite fun, um, he is casting a spell, and completely contrary to how you would normally think a spell would be cast with particular incantations and particular rituals and so on, a la Harry Potter, where the wizards can control the magic quite precisely, Schmendrick casts his hands into the open wind and simply yells at the top of his lungs, magic, do as you will. And that pretty much is exemplary of the entire attitude towards magic in the novel. The magic just does what it will, you know. It's, it's a soft magic system, the rules are made up or they don't exist. It's a very sort of pagan attitude towards magic, very, you know, folk, very like, you know, old folk tales, old fairy tales. And it helps to really give a certain mood to this type of story. This story feels, the word I come up with is entropic. Like, reading this story, I can kind of feel the grains of sand in this world, like, pour through the hourglass. Like, it kind of feels as if the entire world is subject to this slow decay, despite it being kind of a whimsical and bright fairy tale world. It's quite a unique flavour for a fantasy story, I think. Part of it has to do with theming. The, the The theme of age is actually quite prominent in this novel. So... The unicorn herself, who is de facto the protagonist of the novel, although she takes a little bit of a backseat in the latter half, um, she begins the novel as an immortal unicorn. She does not age, she does not even think about the brevity of, you know, mortal lives. They are somewhat of a, you know, a, just a curiosity to her, like, oh, look at these things that perish. How 
how quaint, you know, that's that's how she thinks. And in fact, I've, I've had people tell me when they've read it that they actually kind of think that the unicorn is completely full of herself and they just don't like her. But at some point... Uh, she becomes mortal. She is transformed into the body of a human. And this happens about halfway through the novel, so I'm not spoiling the latter half where the bulk of the drama is. Um, And through this, she learns to be mortal. And there are certain things that she learns about being a human and having this shortened lifespan that dramatically changes her perspective on things. I read it before as an allegory for you know, growing up as a child and slowly coming to terms with the idea that your life is temporary. Because when you're when you're young, or at least this is how I remember, I'm 25 right now, but I remember there was this period of my childhood where things kind of felt a little bit timeless. Like, not that, you know, I thought consciously that my life was going to last forever, but that like I did I didn't feel the seconds of the day passing as I did anything whereas you know now as an adult it's kind of seems like a rat race to you know get everything done before we expire you know there are so many things I want to do with my life now and and the kind of pressure that I feel just knowing that my life is temporary now is something that I just did not experience in the first few years of childhood. And that was something that I think The Last Unicorn captures extremely well. This unicorn who begins the story literally immortal. She like she is beyond time. Time might as well not exist for her. Being transformed into a human and suddenly discovering that her life is temporary. And that is something that I think is the crux of the novel. Like, if this theme resonates with you, I think you will love The Last Unicorn. I can also recommend it for the tone. The tone is spot on. It's this kind of... It's not a dark fairy tale, but it's more like a melancholic fairy tale. Like, there's just sort of this air of, you know, richness in the background that you don't get from, you know, most other tales that focus on, like, childhood whimsy and so on. So there's a lot of adult fans of this novel that love the story of The Last Unicorn. And if you're somebody who is interested in that type of thing but doesn't quite gel with, like, children's animation, cartoon aesthetics, like, you know, the whole bright pastel colours and bouncy character animation and so on, then I reckon that The Last Unicorn novel is probably the best place to get that sort of thing. I think it's, you know, like... People obviously have particular tastes. I have my particular tastes, but I like to keep my diet varied. And so something that's a little bit more simple, a little bit more, you know, fantasy, a little bit more um, fairy tale, creatures of myth, but that's still catered to my tastes as an adult, I think is um, worth worth at least checking out. Uh, So The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle. Love it. It's one of my favorite fantasy novels. Yes, I am one of those people. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks, Nick. That's it for us today. We'll be back on Monday. I'd like to thank newsreader D. Mason, reporter Nicholas Kamenyer-Sandry, and former Daily intern Emily Johnson, and everyone at Joy 94.9 and the Community Radio Network. I'm your host and executive producer, Arian Potts. Mahalo.
The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. Listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.